Okay, so we're doing Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21 today. And uh, as I did with the middle schoolers, can I have somebody read it, please? Yeah, 3, 14 through 21. Evelyn, you want to read again? Didn't you read last week? Here. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Evelyn. You guys are really far to the right, so I'm going to split you a little bit. Okay, so this is the second time in the book of Ephesians that Paul says a prayer for the church of Ephesus. The first prayer that Paul says is what Adam went over in the very first week. It's in Ephesians 1, and that's more of a prayer of encouragement for the people of the church and for people today. But this prayer, it's a little bit different. It focuses on the people of the church, and it's a good example of how to pray. It focuses specifically on Christ's love and Christ's power, and that he prays that we would come to understand the heart of Jesus that way. So the passage, it starts off by saying, for this reason, and I just want to go through uh, like a little bit of a review, like what are the reasons that Paul comes before the Father and prays? So, like Kinsley talked about last Sunday, she said, for the church are statements, or the church is statements. Does anybody remember what those four statements are? Chloe? It just, like she said, the church is blank. The church is united, yeah. The church is firm. Yeah. Uh, the church is beautiful. beautiful. And the church is alive. And the church is alive. So yeah, the church is united, beautiful, firm, and alive. And Paul is individually thanking God for each one of those. He's thanking God that the church is united through Jesus Christ and for the grace and forgiveness that we have through him. That church is not exclusive, and it's a great reason to celebrate. And just like Kinsley and Abby both talked about, Jew and Gentile, it's united under one banner. Secondly, he's thanking God that the church can be and is used to reflect the beauty of that through Jesus Christ, through the people's love to one another. God's love and grace is beautiful and is completely perfect, and the church is uh, a mirror of that to the world, and it's really beautiful when it's working, working well and in perfect harmony with God. Thirdly, he's thanking God for the foundation of the Holy Spirit, which is freely given to us through Jesus Christ, and that Christ is stable and will help us get through all circumstances that Jesus' love is unchanging, whatever we are facing, and it will continue to be a solid foundation for our lives. And we can always depend on his love and grace, no matter what we're going through. Fourth, he's thanking God for the Holy Spirit and the work that he's doing in all those who believe, including himself. The Holy Spirit is always working in those who believe, and it's always alive in the church. And we have many reasons to give thanks to our God, 
And, but when we pray, many of them seem to be situational now. Uh, we like to thank God for our food, our house, our friends, our family, the weather, which all of these are good things to thank God for because God is in control of all of it. But we have much more to give thanks to God for, like Paul shows in this, for things that never change. Uh, like Abby and Adam both talked about earlier this summer, God's grace is abundant, it's never-ending, and it's always available for us. His grace is more than me, we can imagine. And almost everything before this passage of chapter 3 is something that Paul is thankful for, except for mostly the beginning of chapter 3, which is like Paul's talking about his ministry journey. So it's important to see what God has given us and to be thankful for it in every situation and to give thanks to God. So that's why he starts, and in this verse too, he says, he's kneeling before the Father saying this prayer. Um, like, it's important to see that he's kneeling because Jewish people, and uh, they normally didn't take like a kneeling posture to pray. They would either do it like sitting down or standing up. And, but kneeling is an act of humbling yourself before an authority. And so Paul's like portraying this not as a, a posture of kneeling, like getting down on one knee, but it's a, like, an act of humility before God. So like somebody you kneel before is a king or a coach or like someone who has like in a huddle a coach. You, you don't just like go up to a coach and take a knee, but like you take the huddle and you all kneel around the coach. Yeah, sorry, I could have been a little more clear about that. But just like somebody who, who you're listening to. And it's just a way to show that you recognize the authority and that you're submitting yourself to him. And uh, it's like coming to God in a humble confidence like Ephesians 3.12 talks about. So this all comes from the grace of God that Paul talks about in the first two chapters and how it is abundant, and it gives us many things to be thankful for. So we can come, we can kneel before the Father, we can humble ourselves and to the one who is sovereign over all things, the one whom every family on earth gets its name. After giving thanks to the Father and coming to him with a posture of humility, Paul prays that the Spirit may grant you according to the riches of his glory. So it's another callback to something Paul said earlier in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It's by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a work of God, not by works so that nobody can boast. There's nothing that we could have done to receive anything that we're praying for, and there's nothing that we can do on our own. Everything that's given to us is a gift of God's, no matter what it like look, might look like in your lives. So then we're going to go to verses 16. 16 through 19, it says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may grasp, oh, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So there's three points that Paul really prays for in verses 16 through 19. And they all build off of each other, but the third one like encompasses them both. It's like the climax point. So the, Paul first pray, prays for power, and then he prays for love. And the final request is in verse 19, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. But we can't have that happen. We can't be filled with all of the fullness of God unless we know and experience the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and we're built on Christ's love. So first, Paul prays that we will be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. So 
when I think of uh, strength and power, because I played sports, so that's why I kneel before coaches too. But like, I think of outward strength and like lifting weights. And Paul is not at all talking about like that. He's praying that we would grow, get strong, and be able to lift a bunch of weight and like be better at whatever we do. He's praying for our inner being that it would be strengthened. And this is the most important place in us as believers. It's where the spiritual battles take place. Uh, it's where we fight tempta- temptations and sins so that we can be more like Jesus every day. And this, Paul understands it to be, is the most important place for believers to be strengthened. But how is it that Paul thinks we are strengthened and that we are strengthened? Paul doesn't end his point there. And going into 17, he connects the verse with an and and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So how does Christ dwelling in our hearts strengthen us? Uh, There's a big difference between living somewhere and actually dwelling somewhere. And uh, to me, like living somewhere is like not establishing something and just going around and like being lackadaisical and not really doing anything, not putting any roots in. But dwelling is a permanent taking over of some place, establishing roots and changing what was there previously. And one illustration that really helped me was The Croods. I loved that movie. But in the beginning, they, they find a cave, and there's nothing in it. There's no boulder blocking it. They don't have a door. They don't have any paintings. They don't have a sleep pile. They don't have any fire. And then the longer that they live there, it turns into a dwelling place for them. They move a giant boulder in front of the cave, and they have a door to be safe at night. And they start doing the finger paintings like all cavemen do on the wall. So they have decorations. It's starting to be changed. They have a sleep pile. They end up getting a fire. And it's just, they, they changed it to a completely different place than it was before. And just like they changed living in that cave from just living there to dwelling there, Jesus does the same things in our hearts. Paul's praying that Jesus would change our hearts, dwelling in it instead of just living in it. Changing our habits of sin through the Holy Spirit's working in us making them habits of fruit of the Spirit instead of works of death. The second half of verse 17 through the beginning of verse 19, Paul prays, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. So this is almost actually the opposite of what the first prayer is in Ephesians. They're both good things to pray, uh, but... This is the opposite. Paul doesn't mention power here, but we need to understand that God's power, we need God's power to understand the limitless dimensions of God's love because it surpasses knowledge. God's love is always for us, and it's best shown in the self-sacrificial love when he died for us on the cross. That love is always being poured out to us, and it is shown in every aspect of our relationship with Christ, and it's what allows us to grow closer to him. Together, as a united church, Paul prays that we would know the dimensions of his love. So when I was first reading this, I thought it was a little bit redundant, like the length and the width, the height and the depth of his love. And it's it's endless, and like that's all I was reading, that's all I was figuring out. And then I read a commentary, and like to people back then, they had different meanings. Like they weren't just units of measurement, like you're digging a hole and you need to know how deep to dig and how wide to dig. It's there's different meanings or metaphors. So the first one we'll go through is the width. It's referencing the accepting aspect of his love. 
Jews and Gentiles, those near and far, like Kinsley talked about, Kinsley and Abby both did. There's nobody who's out of the scope of God's love. Although you may feel like we are beyond reach of his love sometimes, and that like if you mess up too many times, we're not going to receive it, we will receive his love. It's vast and all-encompassing, reaching everybody, and it's for everyone. So if you put your faith in Jesus, there's nothing that you can do or that you have done that will separate you guys from that love. Second is the length of his love. Uh, it's a metaphor for time. It's his love lasts forever. It's a different love than anybody on earth can give us. It never wavers. From now until the end of time and in eternity, God will love you and his love will never change for you. It's permanent and will never leave us no matter what we do. Thirdly is the height of his love. His love is exalting. Jesus didn't just save us from hell, but God raised us up with Jesus, seated us in the heavenly realms so that we would see the incomparable riches of his grace. That's what Ephesians 2, 6 through 7 says. So doing something now, you can see the benefits, you can see the cost, you can see the rewards of it. And like lots of times, that's what I, and I'm guessing a lot of you, base your actions off of, of like, if I do this, will I get in trouble? Or if I do this, will I, like, something good happen to me? But the benefit of doing something now, looking forward in length, but also in height of seeing the incomparable riches of his grace, how much greater is that than anything we can have on this earth? Incomparable riches of grace. God has a plan for us, and he loves us so much that he'd lift us up and seat us in heaven for eternity. That love, it's it's great. It's, it's exalting. Lastly is the depth of his love, his self-sacrificial love for us. Jesus came down from heaven and suffered through his life. He was mocked. He was ran out of towns. He was beaten, and he eventually died for the same people who mocked him and persecuted him. He went through so much pain on the cross and so much public humiliation while hanging on it and still bore all of the weight of our sin just for us. He willingly accepted this punishment, going to hell for three days and then defeating sin and death and raising from the dead for us. He loves us no matter what we do. And although it's not an excuse to live a life of constant sin, he died for all of our sins. He sacrificed his love for us and it's a completely sacrificial love. There's nothing you can do to lose it. And we can't fathom these aspects of love on our own or even with other believers. It says, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. It's beyond anything that we can comprehend. But we can live in this love forever, even if we can't fully understand it. As we start to understand more of this love through the power of Christ, we will start being filled with the fullness of God, which is Paul's third point that he prays for. Not only would we come to know this love, but we will start to experience it all the time. The more that we reflect on the expressions of God's love in the Bible, and there's so many, Old Testament, New Testament, God, God's love is one of the main themes. It is the main theme in the Bible, and it's just pretty much wherever you go, you can see it if you're looking for it. But the more we'll start to experience it. So just as those are shown to us, God's love doesn't change, and he loves us the same way no matter what we do. He's working in our lives, and Christ is dwelling in our hearts. We will then begin to be changed by his power and love. God can and will do more than we ask, just like verse 20 says. We might think we know what's best for us, but he knows way more than we can think or even imagine, which is, it's like kind of hard to comprehend because like you think you know everything. Like I think I know what's best for me, but like there's so much stuff that's out of our control, and he's working for it 
to glorify him, but also to make you better. And it's just such a comforting feeling to me, and I don't know how comforting it is for you guys that the sovereign God loves us and is working everything out, even like as we don't understand. God will transform our hearts into a suitable dwelling place for Christ so that we, we may experience Christ's power and love for us. And with this ending it, we can be confident in God's measurable love for us and be joyful just like Paul is when he closes out the prayer in verse 21. To him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.